Wild, untamed, unpredictable. We've been to the Amazon before. Once on a float, once on a hike. Today we return, not for a spirit quest, not for epic mountain views. Today we return to the Amazon for its people. Beside the rivers and beneath the trees, the indigenous people of the Amazon remain. And though time changes much of the world they know inside the rainforest, they still have much to teach those of us on the outside. Get Lost podcast fans, it's Meredith from the podcast Meredith for Real, The Curious Introvert. I talk with paradoxical people who share unlikely life lessons, like the happily married swingers who give marriage advice, episode 86. If you like personal development and are ready to meet people outside the algorithm, come visit me at Meredith for Real, The Curious Introvert, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to the Get Lost podcast. Here's your host, thoughtful writer, wide-eyed explorer, has prettier hair than me, Joe Sills. Welcome back to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, freelance journalist for various outlets around the globe. Today, this very special guest joins me. He's an award-winning journalist himself, currently hosts the highest-rated show on CNN Latin America. His name is Pedro Andrade. Welcome to the show, Pedro. Thank you so much. So good talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. So the last time we spoke, uh, it was a few months ago, and you had just launched uh, an incredible show on Vice called Unknown Amazon. Yes, um, a lot has changed, I think, since then uh, in my life. I'm working on different projects now. Unknown Amazon has won a few awards, um, but unfortunately, not a lot has changed in the Amazon, which is one of the which was one of my goals with the show. Obviously, this type of transformation takes time. Uh, yeah. You need to change. Um, I don't know people's behavior, the way people see the Amazon. I mean, the, my the whole point of the show was to humanize the headlines. You know, we hear about political turmoil in Brazil. We hear about wildlife trafficking in Brazil. We hear a lot wildfires in the Amazon, but we really don't know who lives in the Amazon. And that's what I wanted to see with my own eyes uh, sure. and to show on Unknown Amazon. And I think we achieved that. I think you did. It's a remarkable series and I encourage everyone to go and check it out on Vice if you haven't already. But uh, today's episode, we're going to really dig into the Amazon. We we go back there often on the Get Lost podcast, but I would consider you to be someone that has real boots on the ground experience now. Uh, just a, a brief background before we get into that, though. You're actually from Brazil and you live in New York. Yes, I was born and raised in Rio and a lower middle class family, uh, two blocks away from the largest slum in South America. Uh, everything that I've ever done in my life was with the intention of traveling. I've always been obsessed with the idea of um, exploring new culture, discover cultures, discover new places, finding uh, this human aspect of uh, different destinations. Uh, I never was really into uh, tourism, if you will. But I've always been really, really, really curious. And I vividly remember being super young and telling my dad and my grandmother 
that asking them if I could drive to the Amazon. Uh, you yeah. know, when you when you're a child, you fantasize about these uh, crazy dreams. And I, but in a way, I think I wasn't the only one that wanted to do that for centuries. You know, missionaries, explorers, scientists, scientists have seen the Amazon as this huge, dangerous, impenetrable place. Um, and in a way, it still is. You know, I've been to 65 different countries hosting different shows. Um, and I got to say that my experience in the Amazon was probably the furthest from my reality. I mean, even when I went to Myanmar or when I went to Iran or when I went to northern Russia, uh, some things felt familiar. And ironically, the Amazon, at least 65% of the Amazon is in the country I was born in. And it really didn't feel familiar at all. Yeah, that's interesting because I think people... Uh, that listen to this show, mostly in North America, some around the globe, uh, they're going to think, well, Rio, that's in Brazil. That's right next to the Amazon. <laughs> but it, it's not, though, is it? No, it's not. And nothing is really close to the Amazon. Um, what I'm trying to say is, you know, when you produce a TV show far from home, usually you say, okay, so you're going to take this flight. It's going to be 18 hours. Then you're going to connect. It's going to be two hours and you're going to drive there. You're going to take a bus. When it comes to producing a show in the Amazon, you have to take three flights, then two days on a boat, then you climb up a hill and then an indigenous person comes in a tiny canoe and they have to bring four other indigenous people because they have to have room for the equipment. Then you go upstream and the camera falls in the river and it it's just really unlike anything I had ever seen. Um, to me, that was uh, inspiring and it was refreshing in many, many ways. Uh, but unfortunately, I see that isolated communities, truly isolated communities are uh, kind of rare these days, more and more hard to find these days. And I think it was such a privilege to see these places and to meet these people before they disappear. Uh, I don't mean to sure. be apocalyptic and I don't think uh, everything's lost. Uh, I did find hope in the Amazon as well. But yeah, it's, um, it's a big challenge to protect them. Was there a sense of going home when you filmed it? Or as you said, it's like very unfamiliar. That's a great question. Dis uh, I actually just did my 23andMe to find my uh, my roots, genetic roots. Um, and you know, Brazil is a melting pot, you know, uh, the mm -hmm. largest Lebanese community outside of Lebanon, the largest Japanese community outside of Japan, uh, highly influenced by African nations. We've inherited the nostalgia from the Portuguese and the curves from, I don't know, a Senegalese woman. Um, and what's ironic is to think that I myself feel like a byproduct of this hybrid culture, you know, right. um, and 20% of my blood is indigenous. Uh, I know that my grandmother uh, her family was from the north of Brazil, not necessarily inside the Amazon, but at urban yeah. places around. Did you just discover this? Well, she always told me stories and um, about her grandparents. She was born in a really poor family uh, up north, but she was mm -hmm. without a doubt one of the main influences in my life. You know, she left this little town uh, was one of the first women to work in the Senate in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil. Uh, and with the little money she made, she traveled the world, not comfortably at all, but just really ahead of her time. And I remember her cooking uh, Amazonian dishes. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm very close to this chef who's considered to be one of the best chefs in the world, Alexa Tala. I've interviewed him before, and now he's a close friend. And he's been responsible for catapulting the Amazonian flavors. It's sort of like the new frontier when it comes to cuisine. And I remember a lot of the flavors seemed familiar to me, but I was that little kid that when all the other kids came to study in my grandmother's house, they used to drink acai, the real acai. And they were like, oh, this tastes like dirt. 
And um, <laughs> and now it's like, what is, what is acai for for those who don't know? Acai is this berry that comes from the Amazon and it's packed mm. with probiotics and it's super super healthy. And um, now it's known as a superfood around the globe. Yeah. Uh, you can't you can drink it at like Panera Bread and like a fountain. Yes, exactly. And now it's one of it's one of those trends. Like every gym and every shake like bar that you can find a protein shake they always have acai and truth is it doesn't really taste like the real acai but um the actual flip like you asked me if anything was familiar so some of the flavors were familiar mainly in the urban areas of the amazon um i mean people i think don't realize for the most part how big the amazon is you know it's uh if it was a country, it would be the sixth largest country in the world. One third of the trees in the planet are in the Amazon. 20% of the fresh flowing water in the planet is in the Amazon. Over 350 indigenous ethnicities, over 180 idioms. It's larger than Western Europe. It's just, I mean, a different world. <laughs> what percentage of that landscape is actually inhabited by people? Do you have a um, no, that's a that's a great question. I think when you talk about uh, the region that I actually went to close to Ecuador and Peru and sort of the north northwest side of the Amazon, you find less people. You know, it's uh, one of the most biodiverse places in the planet by far. Um, yeah. But as you go more to the I don't want to say that the border because there isn't a border per se. It is in Brazil. But the closer you get to the big cities, the more people you have. For example, one of the first cases of coronavirus in Brazil was in Manaus. When we were filming in the Amazon, I mean, the pandemic was ravishing that whole part of the country uh, because there are so many people and a lot of them are not really educated. Everything was so new. Um, they don't have a choice to like practice social distance. They had never worn a mask. Um, so it's interesting to think about, I don't know, showcasing the human aspect of such a diverse place. You know, I think there is this misconception that if you're indigenous, you can't uh, carry a cell phone, for example. And there you have indigenous people that have never seen a plane and you have indigenous people that have, you know, two TVs. That's interesting. And you're right. There is that perception uh, when you think uncontacted people in the Amazon or in indigenous people in the Amazon. Uh, you think about somebody like holding a bow and arrow and, and pointing it at a, at a Cessna, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Um, but you're saying that actually the reality is is a little bit different than that. It is. Uh, you have both worlds in, in the Amazon. And I am really proud of the fact that we went to this pretty much uncontacted community, uh, the Waoranis, who live uh, in Ecuador, close to the border with Peru. And we had to speak to uh, a lot of officials and the government. And they were like, you do realize that most of the communities in this area are completely uncontacted and they should stay that way. So they basically say, if you run into them, you need to be okay with the fact that they have their own laws. So God forbid something happened to me, there is no suing them. You know, there is no yeah. someone going back there to actually look for me or try to find me. And as you watched it in the series. I mean, I had this really dangerous encounter with uh, this community called Munduruku. I was me and my crew were held hostage by 250 armed indigenous people. I don't have any resentment. I completely understand where they come there. They came from. Uh, historically speaking, indigenous people have been ignored, done wrong, killed, disrespected. So they're defensive and um, they're very, I don't know, cautious uh, when they see cameras. Pedro's story is just heating up. Before we get into his hostage situation in the Amazon, I want to take a few seconds to talk to you all about the show. When I started the Get Lost podcast in 2019, 
The idea was to bring true stories of travel and adventure, like Pedro's, to life. In the world of travel writing, these stories can be a tough sell to editors who are often only able to commission top 10 lists and roundups. That's why it means so much for you to leave a review of the show on your favorite podcast platform. Look, with over a million podcasts on the planet, let's be real. We've got an uphill climb to stand out. But with your help, we can get there. So do me a favor, subscribe and leave a review so we can keep getting lost for years to come. Back to the show. So what I I really want you to do in this episode is I'm actually going to pass the reins over to you and I want you to paint this picture and walk us through the situation where you were held hostage. Oh man. Uh, it really caught us all by surprise. I mean, I, I guess that's, uh, how did you get there? That's what a was given. Going on? Yeah. Uh, basically, um, I interviewed this woman called Alessandra Munduruku. She is a force to be reckoned with. And she belongs to this ethnicity called Munduruku. Uh, Munduruku means head choppers. They have a history of being really violent, but she, I can't say she's not violent because she is aggressive when it comes to politicians. She is the head of protests. She goes to the capital of Brazil to actually uh, speak to lawmakers. Uh, She goes on TV and is extremely vocal about how important it is for us to preserve indigenous rights, for example. and she gave me all this time and I, I learned so much from her. She brought me into uh, her community. And then a couple of days later, uh, I heard that some folks from that same ethnicity had blocked the road and uh, one of the busiest roads when it comes to exporting goods to other places in the world. So Mm -hmm. uh, for two days, you had hundreds and hundreds of trucks filled with soy, filled with you name it, that were supposed to be getting to China, getting to America, and they couldn't pass this road because they were protesting. What caught my attention was the fact that they were protesting because they wanted to have the right to explore indigenous land. And I was like, how come I spoke all this time with one of their leaders and she was telling me that they want to be left alone. They don't want anyone to come into their territory. Indigenous reserves should be untouched. And then all of a sudden, these 250 people from the same ethnicity are saying that they want to do illegal mining. They want to do, they want to work with oil companies. So I did what I think any reasonable person or non-mediocre journalist would do, I went there with my camp, with my crew. And in a matter of, I want to say 15 seconds, we were surrounded by them. Um, Most of them uh, with spears and bow and arrow, but some with actual guns. Um, And there's something really, and I don't say this with any disrespect, at all, but there's something really pheromonic, really animalistic about an indigenous person pointing a spear to your forehead. Um, The way they view death, the way they view killing, whether it's an animal or a person, is very different from the way we see it. Like they- In in what ways? Well, like they, they grow up talking about it every day you leave your home ready to die for your community. Every day you leave your home uh, ready to kill an enemy. And the enemy might be a Jaguar or the enemy might be an illegal miner. It's something that's present in their lives. Uh, You see a lot of like puppies, a lot of like animals in these communities. And that's because they need to hunt to survive. So there are these laws, basically if they kill the mother, they adopt the baby, for lack of a better expression. So this is every day they're killing something, they're killing someone. And so when they, when you're caught, you know, there, like when I was caught there, um, there was a, a chance that things could go really, 
wrong really quickly. We had this one security guard that was right. armed. Um, I prayed to God that he didn't use that gun because what the hell is a gun good for when you have 250 armed indigenous people around you? And he didn't. And basically I was the face of the show and I was the face of the project. And I was one of the only people that spoke Portuguese. Most of them yeah. didn't speak Spanish, Portuguese or English. They spoke their own language, but I found someone who could translate what I was saying. And I was, I basically told them that I was there to hear their side of the story, to give them a megaphone, not to judge them, not to point fingers. Um, and actually we had, ironically, and to my surprise, we had a conversation which I understood what they were trying to say. What they were trying to say is all these people come here, they take our oil, they take our trees, they do you know, illegal mining, illegal logging, and then they leave and we're here with the destroyed land and we can't hunt and we can't fish. So if this is going to be destroyed, we might as well benefit from it. I don't think it's a good strategy. I don't think that's the best case scenario. Right. The fact that we were able to have this exchange, we were able to communicate was really eye opening to me. And then we were they, they allowed us to leave, but they painted our faces with indelible ink. So for, we had to be evacuated by Vice, and Vice is that network that tells stories that other networks don't tell, that yeah. go places where other networks won't go. And they were like, you need to get out of there right now. This ink basically means you're leaving now, that's your last chance to survive. If someone from our community sees you guys, we're gonna chop your head off. That's why no the head choppers. No way. So wait a minute. So wait a minute. And and I know this is like a really sensational story and there's other things that are important to talk about, but I mean. Sorry if I was too long telling the story. I should have been more objective, but is there, there's this so many is, details. This is what we want. This is exactly what we want. I want you to take time and like paint it and actually, <laughs> you know, take the show to, to answer that. But this ink, so it's on your face. Is it like covering your face? Yes, it is. <laughs> and what color is it? Posted later, because we had to take photos, uh, not just for the show, but for the authorities, not to arrest anybody, but basically yeah. to send to the network and say, this is what's happening. And it's crazy. It's this plant called Genipapu, Genipop mm -hmm. or something like that in English. Um, and they use that ink to paint their bodies when they go to war. Uh, when you paint, when you put it in your skin, um, you don't see the paint. So they, they just mm -hmm. threw this water in all of our faces and we didn't know yeah. what the fuck that was. I'm sorry, I cursed, but. That's allowed, it's allowed, <laughs> yeah. But You're in a like, tent situation, they throw water on you and. Yeah, they like have this bucket and they keep like throwing this thing in our faces and I thought it was a curse or something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's called the mark of death. Uh, and as I was driving away, uh, I mean, I'm surprised to, to see how calm and how I was able to control my nerves. I think I'm really good at moments of stress because I sort yeah. of go into autopilot and survival mode. Um, but then I remember looking in the rearview mirror and saying, what? is this and looking at each other and that trans like that that clear water just gets darker and darker and darker and then it's like a lighter shade of blue a darker shade of blue the next day it's black um wow. so we even if we wanted to continue to film we couldn't because how would we explain what was happening aside from the yeah. danger of still sticking around after that happened and so if they hadn't have done that, would you have gone back? Um, I don't think I would have gone back to into that part of the community, into that region. Um, I actually spoke to Alessandra later, uh, which is probably the best part of that episode, in my opinion, is when I, I don't, I shouldn't say confront her, but uh, she was so worried about us that she contacted us. Um, she receives mm. death threats all the time. She, she's always, you know, running away from 
politicians and people that can harm her and her kids. So you can't really contact her. She needs to contact you. And after she saw what happened, oh, and there's a minor detail. They destroyed all of our equipment. So the footage that we show is actually yeah. footage of like phone, like, like they use smartphones to post it on their WhatsApp and Facebook. And so Vice yeah. was able to get a hold of that, and we used that on the show as well. So you, you, so that's also interesting because as these people are pointing spears at you and bows and arrows and some guns, they're also videoing you with a smartphone. Yes, precisely. You see how within 250 indigenous people, you have someone who speaks Portuguese and someone who doesn't, who doesn't speak, someone who uses a cell phone, someone that does has never seen yeah. a phone. You know, and, and that might have saved your life that somebody did. Yeah, Portuguese. probably. Um, so, you, so you rolled up, I guess you guys like you have a trucks and stuff and you just hop out with your cameras and then all of a sudden you're besieged. Yes, uh, it, it, it happened so fast. It, it, it's hard for me to even go there emotionally because I, I don't think you're ever ready for a situation like that. I don't think anything prepares you for that but and you're like a seasoned journalist you've been to over 60 countries oh yeah, you've seen I've seen the world i've interviewed cartel leaders and i've interviewed terrorists and i've i've been to some pretty complex uh dangerous spots um but that was just um almost an outer body experience like uh i, I didn't know if i was gonna get out of that uh, and yeah. lucky enough to be here and once again I, I don't say this with any anger and, and it's just the law of the land and i was there to tell a story and and i think we did a pretty decent job in um showcasing what that community is like and what it feels like to be a Munduruku in the Amazon today. Yeah, and again, as you said at the beginning of the show, when you sign up to go there, you're sort of acknowledging that Brazilian law is not their law. Yes, for sure. Um, it's interesting because I'm working on a different show now, and we just did an episode about Native Americans. Um, mm. And it's hard not to draw a parallel um, and look at America, like Native Americans as what have they done right and what have they, they done wrong? What can Brazilian indigenous people learn from Native Americans? I know it's different, a different time and yeah. circumstances are different, but uh, the fight for these people's rights is still very much real in both countries. You know? One of the things I observed over the summer um, in the Native American communities was Periodically, I would cross through them on camping trips or whatever, if you could. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were like kind of shut down because of the pandemic. But uh, the, the ones that weren't, you could enter. I mean, they, they were leading the charge. They were showing the rest of America how to actually do it right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that I think doesn't get enough coverage and, and warrants like tremendous, tr tremendous respect. Yeah. Um, I went into this community called Lummi. It's a sovereign nation uh, in Washington state, close to the border of Canada. And mm -hmm. they actually have been able to become really powerful and they have a seat at the table and they have their own rules and their own laws, but they, they have sort of like a direct, they have direct communication with Washington DC. Um, mm -hmm. So they realize though that a lot has been lost and things that they'll never be able to gain back. And, um, and they say in, like indigenous Brazil, like when it comes to indigenous people in Brazil, we should be protecting them because they still have a chance to preserve those traditions, to preserve that lifestyle, to um, still exist. You know, Native Americans, I mean, they have they have pride as they should have and they they identify as Native Americans, but their lifestyle is very, very different from their ancestors so, so much was stolen and I, I have some good friends that live in that part of the country and and one of them is a member of the Quinault people 
and we'll get her on the show. Hi, Ashley, because I know she'll listen. Um, but her take is is often that hey, with our culture, it's like a lot of the world wants to put us in a museum, and they want you to walk through the museum and see people with bows and arrows and buckskins and say like that's Native Americans. But her point is, we're not in a museum. Our culture didn't stop evolving, even though so much was stolen. Yes. You know, here we are. Here I am. Here we are, like, drinking beers in Texas. You know, it's I didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And so, so there's that. But I think what's interesting when you're talking about indigenous people in the Amazon is maybe because of the, the difficulty of the terrain or just the, the differences in colonialism in North America and, and South America, like, you were saying people like the Mundelaku or the Warani have their ancestral lands and some of their ancestral life still. Yes, I think a lot of them live precisely as their ancestors used to live. Uh, but I agree with you and your friend. I feel like someone can be very uh, connected to technology, can drive a car, can watch TV and still be 100% indigenous. You know, I, I yeah. don't discriminate or think that it, it really pisses me off when people are like, oh, so he wants indigenous rights, but he has a computer. Um, they yeah. didn't so? choose. <laughs> well, and, and also uh, we went in there uninvited. That wasn't mm -hmm. a choice. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, some indigenous communities were fortunate enough to be protected, like you said, maybe because they're. They were further from what you know from big cities and the access was more difficult but the ones that weren't i mean they're victims and they deserve respect and they deserve those rights no matter how much that tradition has evolved sweet so talk about the amazon and sort of refocus back on that we've got one example of you going to a very hostile place and a hostile group of indigenous people Tell us about a, a different experience of going and meeting people um, that are more peaceful, that welcomed you in a different way. Oh, it, it was the experience of a lifetime and not just with indigenous people. I mean, without Warani, for example, um, to be able to see how they deal with nature and how they don't feel like they own that land but they're a mm -hmm. part of that land uh, to, for once, see a community that doesn't even understand what borders mean, you know, a borderless reality. Yeah. It was amazing uh, to see that, like, when, when you raise kids, the kids are the community's kids. They're not yeah. just their parents' kids. Um, the way they deal with their bodies and... Um, yeah, I, I was absolutely mesmerized. But I mean, one of the most interesting communities I've ever visited were the Quilombolas. Quilombolas are slave descendants. Uh, during the 18th century, about 400,000 African were, Africans were dragged to the US. Almost 6 million were dragged to Brazil. When it comes to slave trade, I mean, few places have been worse than my country, unfortunately. But that had a gigantic impact in the way we we eat the way we look at faith the way we uh, dress the things we think are beautiful uh, so it's impossible to talk about brazil without talking about the influence that these slaves had in our culture our, our national dish was invented by slaves and these pockets of these communities these places called quilombos uh, they exist only because some people were brave enough to run away from their slave owners. Um, and they still preserve a lot of the tradition. So you have these really old churches that were built by the Spanish, the Dutch, mm -hmm. Portuguese. But the way they practice faith in there is completely different. They dance, they chant, uh, they wear turbans. They sacrifice animals sometimes. So to um, analyze this uh, this mixed up culture, you know, it, it yeah. was really, really, really fascinating. 
Describe your experience as sort of this curious outsider, which is really all journalists are. Uh, yeah. You're, you're a curious outsider, and you go to this Quilombo, Quilombolas. Yep. Um, how do you set that up, and what's the reaction when you show up with cameras and a crew? Well, one of the things I wanted from the get-go was to have the Amazon as the connective tissue uh, of the show, but I wanted the show to talk about different topics that were accessible to anyone around the world. Um, I think it could be pretty limiting if we just talked about what life is like in the Amazon. So, for example, in this episode uh, with the Quilombolas, we talked a lot about racism. Um, in the episode about Ribeirinhos, which are the communities that live off and by the river, we talked a lot about climate change. Uh, yeah. With indigenous episodes, we talked about uh, indigenous rights, and that's sort of how we structured the storytelling of um, of the series. Vice has an incredible team of producers. We worked with this amazing production company that's based in the UK, uh, Icon. They have a lot of experience with environmental uh, based shows. They've worked with David Attenborough. Um, and projects right. that are not what Vice would actually usually invest on. So to okay. have, you know, Vice's style with this environmental expertise was a really incredible combo for me to work with. Um, sure. And I mean, so you've got an amazing Brazil, team behind you. I'm sorry? You've got an amazing team behind you as you. Yeah, and, and being from Brazil down. and working. And uh, Brazilian television for many years, uh, I feel like I had a level of access that a lot of people wouldn't have. I think yeah. I was able to make a few phone calls and do a type of research that is hard to do just by Googling a certain name. Um, what do you mean by that? But like, what is the type of research? Well, um, like I said, I, I'm really close to, just because I used him as an example, Alex Atala, who catapulted Amazonian flavors to the world and has brought chefs from around the world into the Amazon. So like he had relationships with indigenous communities. He's been there. Like he knows where they grow this, how they hunt that. He didn't come as a guest, but he was able to connect me with some people that don't have an email, for example. So that's what I mean yeah. by uh, the access that we ended up having on the show. Um, I think it's priceless. I, I don't think it could happen any other way. Yeah, it's like Fred at the market. You got to go find this specific guy in this specific place. And yes. He'll only be there between this time. Yeah. <laughs> that is how you get to the world secrets, isn't it? Yeah. For sure. And that's how it's been for a long time. But now we sort of rely on different type of technology, which which opens a lot of doors, but also uh, domesticates us in a way like it, it makes us not see further than that. If you can't sure. find it on Google, maybe it's not out there. And I don't think that's how it works. Sure. So we live in a world today that's becoming increasingly aware of the realities of climate change. Mm -hmm. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find somewhere, maybe other than the Arctic, where uh, the stakes are higher than in the Amazon. So you mentioned the river people, and that's something we talked about in our story, but I'd like you to paint that scene for the listeners and talk about going uh, up the river and meeting a community that's being affected by climate change in a drastic way. Well, for centuries... Uh, the river people, um, they had to move from place to place twice because of the tides, because of the river. The, the, basically, the level of the water changes depending on yeah. what time of year you visit them. Uh, so two tides. times a year they would move? They would move twice a year. But now because mm -hmm. of climate change, every two months they have to pack up and leave. So you have these communities that are almost nomadic they they can't even think about building a school 
or having a church or um, getting the money to create, I don't know, a medical facility because yeah. every eight weeks they have to move. So you see that the weather pattern is completely out of whack. Uh, what yeah. people don't understand is that the Amazon is not a Brazil problem. It's not a South American problem. It's all of our problem. Like if we lose the Amazon, um, more glaciers are going to melt, more wildfires are going to happen. And to give you an idea, when I was born, 1% of the Amazon, as we know, had been destroyed. Now 21% has been destroyed. That's uh, vast difference. And you're not that old, you know. You're, no. It's not like you're an old man sitting here. 20% has been destroyed. And if we reach 40%, we're going to reach a point of no return. Um, once again, we started this conversation uh, and I said, I don't want to sound apocalyptic also yeah. because I don't think this show is a heavy show at all. I think, no, it's, it's, it's lightness. a fun show. Yes. And yeah. fun. And, um, I mean, I, I go hunting black caimans. I dance, I laugh with them. Um, but the truth is I'd be lying if I wasn't worried. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it, the show, and I, I really do want you guys to check it out, even though it's like we didn't invite Pedro here to promo the show completely, but it really dances this line that I think has been missing since Bourdain left us, which was like fun and exciting and stimulating, but also like would make you pause and make you really think about life for just a couple of seconds, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, thank um, you so much. <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome. I haven't seen that. Not that it hasn't existed, but I haven't seen it until now uh, since Tony has been gone. So to me, it's just an important piece of filmmaking and, and work that deserves to be out there and deserves to be seen. Yeah, and, and I really do. Uh, I do have to say that I'm proud of the people that so generously opened their doors and opened their hearts and were able to cry with me and to laugh with me. Um, I mean, these are people that don't really have any interest behind talking to a TV show. An American yeah, it doesn't, show. It doesn't do anything for them. Exactly. Right? Um, so the fact that they were so generous and they were so fun and yeah. they were so willing to welcome me and to spend that time with me. I mean, it, it was really gratuitous when it comes to them. And mm -hmm. I'll forever be grateful. Do they, when you go into a community that's like that remote, do they recognize you as like a fellow Brazilian or are you just fellow human? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think I use the fact that I'm from Brazil as a way to initially connect with them, but sure. it's definitely not enough. Um, yeah. I feel like they, because I mean, for example, some of the Waranis and some of the Munduruku and some of the indigenous people, they didn't speak my language. So it, it didn't really matter. Uh, that yeah. it really allowed me to tone some journalistic muscles or social muscles that, yeah. you know, uh, I think will forever be useful and important to me. Like it, I, because I've been to so many places and I've, um, interviewed people that didn't speak the same language and didn't live the same mm -hmm. reality I live. I understand that there is, uh, an exchange that's not, it's nonverbal. Um, yeah. yeah. it's sort of like the approach, how you look people in the eye uh, it's something that's hard to, to teach and it takes a long time to learn, but I feel like with unknown Amazon, it wasn't just an interview. I was spending time with them and hunting with them and cooking with them and eating with them. And, uh, it, it was really emotional, uh, for me to, to leave the Amazon. Mm. Um, uh so are you saying it changed your perception of yourself in a way? Oh, for sure. I I have no doubt that I'm not the same man I was when I landed in Manaus in the Amazon. Um, yeah. It gave me a different sense of pride. It gave me a sense of urgency. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 
it is like the that. urgent the urgency what's that about what are what are you urgent about now that you weren't before well i, I just feel like i need to do my part and just working on the show is not enough but i believe in the domino effect of like more people hearing about it more people talking about it uh and it's a lot more complex and nuanced than just uh, recycle or buy an electric car um but i think awareness is really powerful uh i think yes. if, if you know what what's happening there and if you know how it will impact your life maybe you'll think twice about who you're going to vote for um one of the things that really gave me hope when it comes when it comes to this project was to see this generational gap. I really feel like old people have in a way given up and they have this, um, this limit, limited view of what should be done. Oh, but you know, economy, corruption, violence. I'm not saying that those are not important topics. Uh, I'm not here to promote the Green New Deal, but what I thought was really fascinating was to see how young folks, teenagers, children, they have this almost reckless, irresponsible hope in their eyes. Yeah, not opt optimism. Yeah, they're like, we can do this and this is how we're gonna start. So I saw small communities, uh, mainly young people in small communities in the Amazon saying, okay, so you adopt those eagles over there. So they monitored those eagles, you know, you adopt that family of uh, mountain bears. The only bears in South America are in the Amazon, the high Amazon, you adopt them. So he sort of always kept an eye on them and brought them food when they could and told authorities when he saw people trying to hunt them. So really, yeah, these are things that come with optimism, but also come with this youth that's, that thinks they can take on the problems of the world and they can solve them. I relate to that because, and I think a lot of listeners might as well, because just in our daily conversations, there are people that you interact with that when they're faced with a problem, it becomes an obstacle. Mm -hmm. And then there's people that are faced with a problem and it's a barrier. Mm -hmm. And you know, the difference, like an obstacle, uh, this is a pain in the ass, but I can get over it. Yes. And the people that see a barrier, I just, I hit a wall and I'm like. <sighs> oh, and there's this entrepreneurship that doesn't yeah. come from school. These kids are yeah. trying to solve problems just by talking to each other, yeah. inspiring each other that they're teaching their parents. Um, and I found that really hopeful. Is part of that powered by like this connectivity that the kids have that the older generations just didn't have at that age? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're plugged in, right? They're always plugged in everywhere. Yeah, they start movements and you have environmental activists and you have uh, activists for indigenous rights. Uh, and usually we're talking about very young people and society usually looks down on them and sort of shrugs their shoulders, but they're powerful. <laughs> I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like the power of optimism is huge. And like, here I go on this like very American ramble about optimism. Right. Um, because you know, we're naive and all that is some of that's true, but I really do believe that. I mean, there are people changing the world that are just crazy enough to do it. Yeah. So just go try. I did this. I worked on this episode about activism in Oakland, a place that has a history of race, like, racial activism yeah. and environmental activism. And, but I feel like that part of the country revolves around those people that believe they can. And I think we're sort of addicted to believing we can't and that it's too late and that we can't, you know, uh, big oil is too big. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's, Exactly. Like the man is too big. The man is unconquerable. The corporate structure, the politicians, the, the this and this and this. And they're all like real concerns. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. And also I look at it at, from a privileged position, like as a middle class white guy. Like how easy is it for me? Yes, I can say the same. 
Right. Like so easy for us, you in New York and me in Memphis, and we sit in our like cool looking lofts and whatever and just pontificate on the world. But I think the difference is that to toot our own horns, like we do get out in the real world and get muddy, right? Yes. And respect people that don't look like us and people that don't act like us and um, treat them with dignity and I yeah. think it's and shine a spotlight on those people when they want one, when they need one. Like that's the mission, right? It's one of the privileges of what we do is to give a megaphone to people that need it. Absolutely. So Pedro, as we kind of wind down here, I don't often get to talk to guests with as much like experience as you in the journalism field, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about what's it like to be face to face with the leader of a cartel or a terrorist or something? How do you handle that in the moment? I find the humanity that connects us. I go in without my preconceived judgments. I, in the end of the day, whether you are the president of the United States or you're someone picking blueberries, uh, in a field in Tijuana, uh, what took you there, what got you there were the choices you made based on the circumstances around you. And some people are more privileged. Some people had more resources. Some people had it easier. Some people had it harder, but, uh, I think we're just, uh, too used to judging people and thinking we are, we can do better. Uh, I also recently worked on this documentary about sex workers. Uh, I also worked on this piece about the trans community. Um, and I know that you asked about cartel and terrorism, but I, I try, my approach is always the same. It's like, why are you here? What brought you here? Quite often people made those choices because they didn't have um, a choice or they because of survival or because the environment they were born in didn't give them a lot of opportunities. So I try to talk to them, um, giving them a chance to have a seat at the table, giving them a chance to explain themselves, giving them a chance to um, showcase their side of the story instead of just confronting them, instead of just saying, pointing my finger and saying, you shouldn't do this. What you do is responsible for the deaths of so many people. I can't ask those questions. I'll get to those questions. But I think Mm -hmm. the best way to do it for me is to sort of gain their trust in the beginning of the conversation. And it doesn't matter what they do, where they live, how they feel. If I completely disagree with them, I don't have to kiss their ass. I just want to hear them. Uh, I think it's more important to listen than to talk, to learn than to teach. It's kind of a cliche, Mm. but I believe that. Yeah, it is. But I think it's also like literally our jobs, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's, it's to go somewhere and say, what's going on here. But the, the method of how you do that, I think it separates, uh, the great journalists, uh, from the good journalists, from the mediocre ones, right? Thank you so much. And, And honestly, it's really not about me ever. Mm-hmm. I want that to, to be really clear. Like, uh, mm-hmm. even though my name is in the title of the show and I'm executive producer, the show is about these people and I'm just sort of like the vessel and just the platform, um, to, I don't know, to, to shine a light on these issues and to once again, give a voice to these people. As we wind down on Unknown Amazon, uh, you guys can catch it out on Vice, talking to Pedro Andrade, who's the host and EP of the show. Um, think about all of the communities that you visited, from peaceful to diverse to people that pointed weapons at you and, and threw indelible ink on you. What's the commonality? Mm-hmm. What should people take away? That we're a lot more similar than we think we are that we're Mm -hmm. we've been asking the same questions and looking for similar solutions for a really long time uh one of the places that changed my life was myanmar when i got to myanmar 
Uh, Myanmar had been isolated from the rest of the planet for almost eight decades because of a brutal dictatorship. I got there and they didn't know what a cell phone was. They had no idea what a credit, credit card was. Um, and still, they were lovely. They were welcoming. We played ball. We ate together. Um, so I could say the same about when I went to Botswana. I can say the same about when I interviewed a North Korean refugee in Seoul who was gay. Um, so I'm fascinated by the human experience, no matter what the human experience is. And I, for a long time, I think in the beginning of my career, the traveler that I was uh, looked for, for authenticity and what uh, made us unique and what set us apart. And I've learned to, I've, to, to shift my gaze into what brings us together and what, are, what, what we have in common. And to be honest, today, I feel like I've evolved into this traveler or this person that understands how important it is to adapt. I think we live in a globalized world and yeah. the future will be a lot more mixed up than we imagine. Could be, because if you go to Myanmar today, I mean, there's phones. There's Oh, for sure. Yes. You know, and then, yes, they're certainly having their problems again, but uh, it changes so, so fast. Well, really so, quick, because you said that uh, mm -hmm. one of the most shocking uh, moments of my trip to the Amazon was when I saw a Warani teenager with a cell phone. It was like an old school phone running to this antenna where somehow he got reception and all of these kids started watching a, a movie, a cartoon or something in the phone. Meanwhile, their parents, their grandparents, they've never done that at all. And I end the episode saying, you can uh, shoot uh, an oil worker, you can uh, kill, I don't know, a miner, but you, this type of cancer you can't kill with a spear you know like uh, the, the internet um smartphones i'm not saying that that's a bad thing i'm just saying that that's something that they can't undo and how to stay away from it or decide if they should embrace it these are big choices when it comes to an ethnicity yeah at the end of the day i think you also hit on the fact that it should probably be their choice yes for sure. You know, who am I to say? Who am I to tell? Yeah. The days of riding around on trains and shooting Buffalo with your long rifle, that's gone. Okay. We live in a society that hopefully is better than that. And I think you're right. I think these people deserve their own choice. So mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. Pedro, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's, it's been a, a great show. Um, I know we've been trying to put it together for a while, so I appreciate your I time. I hope we, we can do this many, many, many more times. Always count on me. I love talking hey. to you. Hey, listen, we can get you on every season and have you talk about <laughs> one of your 65 uh, countries. That should get us until at least one of us dies. I'll have big news for you very soon, so I'll keep you posted. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast for cool prizes and contests, as well as updates from the show.